0: Hi, Vicky. Hi, Shane. What is the coolest thing that you've ever drawn, or or something you've made visually? I know that you're a visual artist. Um, yeah. Yeah. What have you done?
1: Oh, um, hmm. I love to draw.
0: I know. Like, I know. Love, this love is this is this is a problem just for you. Know. you. <laughs> oh, it's a,
1: that's exciting. So, um, so I've drawn. I have like so many things to talk about, but I think um, in during the pan during 2020, mm-hmm. at some point in 2020, um, I started. Uh, just drawing like random everyday things that told like a little story to me um, in the the day to sort of like pass the days away. I would do a little watercolor illustration of like one day I did uh, my daughter's like new water bottle that I had gotten her. And one day I painted my, um, like a really, really old, pretty disgusting hat that my husband (laughs) insists on keep wearing. Um, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that he it's like our it's like from our college right okay. um so i have these like little illustrations that sort of like demonstrate 2020 as a year
0: are there are there written descriptions associated with these or these these just descriptions of them, in your mind
1: some of them i was posting them online for a little while and like writing little descriptions um, this is before
0: or after to go you with them quit ig
1: oh before okay, <laughs> and then I quit for a while. Yes, so some of them are, are on on IG as you said on Instagram, um, but yeah, thanks Jane. But um, but anyway, so like some of them are, like one of them is like a little cookie that we made on Valentine's Day, oh. and like things like that, and like a little roll of tape where we were, um, this blue roll of tape that we were using to just like hang everything all over the house, like every drawing that my daughter made, everything, like just... Basically painter's tape so it
0: doesn't rip the paint exactly. off Exactly.
1: <laughs> yeah. So I painted that like roll of tape. Um, so it's kind of almost like a diary.
0: Oh, that's nice. Do you, yeah. do you still have all of these things somewhere? Are they still yes, all I around do. your
1: house? I got, um, no, <laughs> no, but I got like a, um, like a portfolio, like a plastic sheet book
0: okay. to keep them in. Do you Aww. know what I mean? I do know what you mean. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. So lovely. Yeah. So that's, I think, the coolest for me thing I've ever drawn.
0: It sounds very cool.
1: Yeah. Are you, you're not a, a visual artist? Are you a visual I'm artist?
0: I'm not a visual artist. I will not be answering this question.
1: <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh boy. Got nothing.
0: Science is fascinating, but don't just take my word for it. Join us as we hear stories from scientists for everyone. I'm Shane Hanlon.
1: And I'm Vicki Thompson.
0: And this is Third Pod from the Sun. So today, my prompt was pretty straightforward, and it relates fairly well to what we're actually going to be hearing in the interview.
1: That's really, really surprising to me. <laughs> right? To no one. No, to everyone.
0: Surprising to everyone, including myself. Uh, yeah. But yeah, so our interviewee, our guest today, uh, their job is to make cool stuff that NASA scientists do, make that work accessible to everyone, to non-science audiences, to peers, colleagues, etc. Specifically through visuals, uh, which mm. I guess one could say that that's similar to what we do in an audio format.
1: Toot your own horn. <laughs>
0: okay fair enough uh we shall just move on and get into the episode our interviewer was ashley hamer
2: my name is mark subaro i work for nasa's goddard space flight center and i lead the scientific visualization studio We call it the SVS, the Scientific Visualization Studio. And it's a group that's been around for about three decades. And what they do is they take NASA science, all of NASA science, and make images out of it, images, movies, things for the public to understand, things to help scientists communicate their science to other scientists, sometimes even things that we use to communicate science to policymakers as well. So it's basically turning science into movies. The, the team uses a lot of the same software and visual effects software that Hollywood uses. We kind of, so we have one foot in that world, but at the same time we have to be able to understand, you know, and it's all different kinds of science Earth science, planetary science, heliophysics, astrophysics, and uh, be able to speak the language of science as well.
3: Wow. That's, that's fascinating. And what does a typical day look like in that for you? Is it just like a lot of time at a computer?
2: Yeah, I'm. I'm sure. Like everybody tells you that like, no day is really a typical day. Yeah, I. I think it's. Um, there. You know, the when you're doing the actual work. Yeah, it's. It's time at a computer. It's writing code. It's iterating on look and feel. We also have. Um, we have different clients. So if we're working on a particular product, say say I'm doing a visualization of methane that comes from wetlands across the world. I might be interacting with the scientists who uh, ran the models to determine that. Or we might be talking with a, a video producer about how we're going to package that visualization into other NASA communication products. Or maybe even someone on social media about like, oh, can I make a version that looks good on Instagram or something like that.
3: Awesome. That's great. I yeah, so interested So many questions about this, but just to take a step back, what what drew you to science in the first place?
2: Yeah, it's a good question. I think like my earliest memory of being attracted to science, I was quite young, you know, like maybe four years old, and it was it was watching TV. It was watching a, a science documentary on PBS, and I, I have no idea what it was, but I remember seeing like an amoeba, and this idea that there was all of this like undiscovered world, you know, in a drop of water that you didn't know about. And, that, and I think that was like the fundamental interest. And that kind of stuck in my mind. You know, as I got older, I I was really influenced by science fiction and, and also science writing as well. So, you know, um, Isaac Asimov and Arthur C. Clarke, they both wrote a lot of science fiction, but also hard science as well. And I, I would read both of them. And I think that's, that same sort of desire to like uh, the fact, the idea that there's more to the world than we know, kind of led me from maybe instead of uh, investigating that drop of water, but thinking about really big things. And that was my interest in astrophysics and cosmology.
3: And so are you schooled as as an astronomer?
2: Yeah, so my background is as a, as a research astronomer. Um, Got my PhD in in astrophysics, and a lot of that was working. Well, my first real big project I worked on was a survey to make the biggest map of the universe that had ever been made, and that um, the Sloan Digital Sky Survey was was a really sort of wonderful project by many measures in terms of number of papers put out and citations. All that it's one of the most successful projects in the history of astronomy. My job was um, running the software to determine the distances to galaxies. So this was like, this is really a 3D map. And 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 I kind of known from my training, like I know how to make 2D maps, but I didn't really know how to plot things in 3D. And that's that's when I started playing around with computer graphics. And that that sort of led to my interest in visualization. You know, as this map started to come together, I realized that I was able to display, you know, this was like our best knowledge of what the universe looked like, but nobody nobody really knew what it. Nobody could see it. You know. It was like on my computer, but nobody else really knew what things looked like, even people working on the project. And that's, that, all of that led me to really value the visualization as being a really key part of understanding. There was something that you got out of it that you weren't just getting from just the numbers that we did. You know, I would do research about like, how galaxies are distributed, and you measure certain statistics, and you get some numerical values that tells you how clustered galaxies are. But it wasn't quite the same as seeing through it. And actually, with some of the more advanced tools, being able to fly through it and feel like you're there. So, yeah, that was really that that was, I think, sort of the impetus for that transition. Like I started just doing more and more visually oriented science, uh, but also wanted it started, you realize the importance of sharing that with the public. And that that led me eventually I at this time I was working at the University of Chicago but i i started a half time position at the adler planetarium in chicago and and eventually i sort of transitioned over there and, and and moved more and more into science communication i got pretty enamored with the planetarium as a venue for that because if you're talking about large data sets, you're talking about this map that we built, this three d map of the universe, seeing it in a planetarium is a completely different experience when you're inside you know a seventy five foot dome seeing that data all around you, you can see those million galaxies, and it went from being like, "I have a sense of what the structure is looking on my laptop, but in the dome flying through it i like it felt like a place, I could remember relationships better it was it was just a fascinating thing to explore and so that you know that really was the impetus to say like oh i think planetariums are really special places and you'd see it you'd see it from the visitors you'd see the fact that you'd be in in one and an elderly woman would come up and she would tell you clearly about this experience she had you know in grade school like there's something about this environment that's causing people to have this deep emotional connection to it
3: yeah, I feel like a lot of people would think that science visualization would be like an art. Uh, you would need an art background. Is there is there artistic like talent that you need for this? Are are you artistic? Do you consider yourself that?
2: Yes, I mean I I, I wouldn't call myself an artist, but you're definitely at the realm where you're blending science and art. You at least at, you it's important to have a good eye. Back when I was doing more hardcore research, I would I would take classes and paint watercolors and, and do things like that. And then once I started working at the planetarium, I really stopped doing that. And and part of that was just because I was feeling like with this career and uh in in doing the science visualization, I was sort of both sides of the brain were being activated and both skills were being used and and uh and that was really, really a great thing about this career.
3: Nice. So, do you have any people or things that served as your inspiration to get where you are?
2: Yeah, um, you know, a, a lot of people have have inspired me at, at various points. I, you know, one I think with my current role, my, my current role at NASA, and, and one of the challenges of this role is that you're you you are working at this interdisciplinary field, and you you want to take people with many different backgrounds and have them work together effectively. The person I I think who did that the best was was Donna Cox at the University of Illinois, and she really pioneered this style of scientific visualization that that we do, a a sort of cinematic style of science visualization. But also, uh, she pioneered a way of working with an interdisciplinary team. She calls it a renaissance team. So Mm -hmm. she's someone I got to work with a lot, especially when I was starting in Chicago and she was down downstate in Illinois, you know, is really uh, a model for how I want to build uh, build this group.
3: That's, that's really cool. What was the biggest hurdle or obstacle to you being where you are today?
2: I kind of feel like that really the sort of outreach and research shouldn't be as separate as they are and, and trying to walk that line between being someone who does both as much as possible and maybe I've, you know, I've, I've gone on the line more towards doing outreach, but I think there's real power in, as an outreach person, you know, being able to say that, hey, I'm I'm actual scientist who does this. But um, also, if we're scientists, and I've seen this with so many of the, the graduate students and postdocs who would come through our lab and, and talk with the public, just to one, keep perspective so you can talk to each other, and then give that perspective back to yourself to tell to, to help guide. You just remember that what you, it's a privilege to do, to get to do this and, and to enjoy it.
3: Do you think that's the, the main hurdle for scientists who try to communicate with the public? I mean, not everyone, I'm sure not everyone is, is as good at it as, as you are, and I've, I've definitely seen that. Do you think that's the main thing is like they just can't keep perspective?
2: Yeah, I think it's it's about being able to widen that perspective. Uh, absolutely. We tell everybody like, you know, avoid jargon, do this, do that, but they all have to do with the same thing. They have to do with the fact that you are too much in your sphere. What I what I push back against is this idea that experts are not good communicators because mm. they forget these things. Well, only if they allow themselves to. I think what they need to be is very conscious. Very conscious of of the language they use, of, yeah, maybe they step back and, and, and put that a different way. When you actually talk to people and you talk to anyone who's interested enough to listen to you, which is already you know, like this, but people who are interested enough to listen to you, even if they don't know the terms, even if they might mix up some scales, I think you're almost always better giving people the benefit of the doubt. So you don't start, you don't assume knowledge, but you also, you want to talk to people in a way that makes them makes them feel. I, mean, I, I could put this a better way. I guess uh, what I'm trying to say is that like my the sort of kind of science communication I've I've always argued for is is one that kind of gives the public the benefit of the doubt,
3: respects their intelligence. Is that what you're looking for?
2: Respects their intelligence. I mean, no, nobody nobody likes being talked down to.
3: Yeah
2: and so like we sometimes can go too far in our effort you know not not to lose people in that we can talk down to people and it's not the big concepts like the really big concepts are in many ways often the easier the easiest things to understand i'll give an example from astronomy like so there are a couple things that people always ask about in astronomy it's well it's black holes well Black holes are just cool and in the public imagination. But interestingly, a lot of the topics people ask about are cosmological and like really big things like the origin and evolution of the universe. which seem like really, really advanced science. And you might say to yourself, well, people don't understand how seasons work. Like if they don't understand how the seasons work, why am I explaining to them about like redshift and the expansion of the universe? But if you actually stop and think about it, an expanding universe is an easier mental concept than how the seasons work, which is actually a lot of complex geometry, which is actually hard to piece together. It's just that it's it seems like it's simple because one's far removed from our experience and one is our, our everyday experience. But the reality is, is that people, and now maybe pulling this back in the kind of visual work we do now, and, and part of this comes from an insight one of my colleagues had early on where he said that If I'm going to write a story uh, about something, I've got to write it at a fifth grade level. But I can show you imagery. I can show you a movie of what's happening that's at a graduate school level. Or actually, the movies that we make, because of the tools we use, we're going to be able to show that in a way that has more detail than the scientists often even knew existed. They'll see more than they, they, they knew about in their own data. And that's why I feel like visually that's the trick to get more complex information in. And we live in a world where the science behind how our planet is changing is complex science, right? And there's no way around it. There are some simple overriding concepts, but as we really get into it, we're going to have to get beyond those, you know, simple ideas of like greenhouse gases and actually investigate, you know, like all the complex interactions that are going on as part of climate change. And how do we get the public to a point where they can actually understand and make decisions based on that? I think a, a tool for that is visualizations.
3: It's interesting that you mentioned the seasons too, because that to me that seems like a concept that absolutely needs visualization to really understand. You know, whenever people are talking about it, they put their fists in the air and they're like, this is the sun and this is the earth. And yeah, so it, yeah, it's it's interesting to think about how many scientific concepts can be explained just through visualization. What is the personal achievement that you're the most proud of?
2: That's a really good question. I think it w- would be some of my work in the planetarium. I think I think it was part of this, something that we, a, a piece of nomenclature I, I gave to it was this, the term data to dome. And the idea is that if we could streamline the process of, you know, a measurement being taken, a discovery happening to actually to the to that being visualized, that we that we could make it easier to communicate current science. And so this was this data to dome sort of movement was something that we started in the planetarium field. And I think it's it's gotten real traction. And the goal, I think the ultimate goal is to lead to better engagement. With current science, and so that's something, something I'm really proud of. One one little thing that just from the past year, I mean, one of one of my goals of of coming to this position at NASA had to do with the fact that it was it was changing scope a little bit. Even though people think about NASA and space, the SVS, most of the SVS's work is actually in Earth science, and and at the Goddard Space Flight Center, they're more. Working earth scientists, and I think in any institution in the world, and so much of that is, you know, a whole lot of that is focused on, on, on climate, and of course the whole earth system, you know, is, is is intimately tied with climate change. But I got to a point where, as much as I loved astronomy, I think being able to have some impact on, you know, this this tremendous issue that the world is facing, and actually. And and one where the the public communication system is so broken and people's understanding of what's happening is so broken and to have a positive impact on that. So that that really motivated me sort of shifting in this role, shifting more towards an earth science-based focus. And this year, uh made a little a simple little visualization called like climate spiral. But you know, it's gone viral with you know millions and millions of people sharing on the internet. And just to see the conversations, most of it's really good, and you realize, like, oh, if you can find the right way to, to make something clear, or interesting, or beautiful enough, so people pay attention, it gets them talking about something. And if they're talking about it, they're paying attention to it. And and just being able to like push a little bit on on that that public awareness and understanding and engagement around something like climate change is is very re- rewarding.
3: And what do you see as one of the biggest challenges in science today?
2: I'm going to answer two things. I think one is the ch- changing the culture of how science is done. And, you know, that's something that's been happening, and it's been happening fast. But in many ways, the way we train scientists is just not in step with the way modern science is done. and And it's done with large teams, big collaborations, you know, coordination. The infrastructure of science is very important. You know, I worked on software projects and infrastructure projects. The reward systems aren't always there to reward that kind of work. Everything's enabled by the infrastructure, but it it's often the reward comes from picking off the results that come out of that infrastructure and, and getting papers out. So I think, like, that sort of transformation in, like, how collaborations happen, how publishing happens, and and that integration of you know what we've been talking about for the most time is communication and making that communication fundamental part of science. You know, um, science isn't finished until it's communicated, right?
0: Well, we're doing the good work of communicating science and we're artists, right?
1: Yeah. But are you seriously (laughs) comparing yourself, our work to the amazing work that Mark is
0: doing? I mean, I, I I was until I got that look from you that no one can actually see on the podcast. But but in all fairness, you are right. Uh, As a science communicator, I always talk about making science more accessible. And one way to do that is to communicate science through different media and mediums. Uh, And I want to thank Mark for the work that he does. And with that, that is all from Third Pod from the Sun.
1: Special thanks to Ashley Hamer for conducting the interview and to NASA for sponsoring the series.
0: This episode was produced by Jason Rodriguez and me with audio engineering from Colin Warren and artwork by Karen Romano-Young.
1: We'd love to hear your thoughts. Please rate and review us. And you can find new episodes on your favorite podcasting app or at thirdpodfromthesun.com.
0: Thanks all, and we'll see you next week. How many, how many did you end up doing?
1: Oh, I want like a hundred. Like, oh, wow. Okay. A, you did a yeah. bunch. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I even got like a little light so that I could like light the things I was. And sometimes I would draw something that was like, that I was reminded of from, from like my childhood. So it hmm. wasn't necessarily related to the pandemic uh, necessarily. Necessarily. Should I say that again? Say it again. Times. Necessarily. But um, like I drew a, like a leave a penny, take a penny. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No. I know. For some reason, reminded, and I don't feel like. Do we still have those? Leave a pen. I mean,
0: I'm sure, like some gas stations here and there. I know when I go back to like where I grew up, rural
1: Pennsylvania.
0: I I, I did not. (laughs) I intentionally did not (laughs) say it uh, because even though this isn't going anywhere, I still didn't want to give you the satisfaction of it. Uh, It is funny how though when I feel like that's a really, I feel like that's a really productive use of time during yeah. the uh, the stay-at-home part of the pandemic, whereas I right. decided to play Zelda on my Nintendo Switch. So that's how I spent the pandemic, oh, or at least the, Nintendo uh, Switch. the shutdown part of it.